are listening to the Opening Statements Podcast, brought to you by HyperChat Social, the podcast bringing you real lawyers and their real stories. I'm Laura. I'm Rebecca. And I'm producer Evan. This week, our guest is Ted Ader, a graduate of the University of Georgia School of Law, partner at Conway Ader. Ted is an intellectual property lawyer who has filed dozens of patent and trademark applications and achieved dozens of U.S. patent and trademark office registrations, and he routinely litigates in state and federal court. Yes, and today, his most prestigious honor, he joins the Opening Statements Podcast. Court is now in session. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. We are so excited to have you. We had some great chats pre-show, so we know it's going to be a good one for everyone listening. I know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, unless we used all the good stuff. We, we, we might well, we'll bring it back up. Yeah. Yeah. It's for boring. Um, I can talk for hours, guys. <laughs> <laughs> um, to just get us started, why did you get into law? Oh, that's a great question. Um, Thank you. So I was originally a chemist, believe it or not. I have a chemistry degree from undergraduate. And um, I really, you know, there's just, there's way more fun ways to catch cancer than being in a chem lab all the time. I'm always, <laughs> always saying that. Yeah. <laughs> it's, well, it's true. So, <laughs> and the other thing is, you know, it's funny. A lot of these insular communities, and Logan's a bad rap, obviously. There's a, there's a bit of a, um, you know, kind of sexist environment and everything, hmm. but it's nothing compared to what I experience in research science. And the uh, the professors you work under, you know, really lorded over you in a way that any partner would be jealous of at a major law firm. <laughs> uh, but I remember when I was in college, I, I saw a guy rip into the research professor I was working under, who I was not too fond of at the time, and I thought, I want to do what that guy does. Uh, and he happened to be the university's patent. Uh, patent <laughs> I shattered him and I was like, this is a cool job. You help people, you know, and you help people kind of protect their inventions and you encourage ingenuity. And it's something where every day you get to see something that's new that doesn't exist before. So, yeah, it was a cool gig. And um, I, you know, I just I took the LSAT on a whim, did pretty well. And, and then just kind of the rest is history. Wow. Is I, feel, Elsa, I feel like I, this is not the first time I've heard someone be like. Right. I took it on a whim. Yeah. Right. Yes. Like, is it yeah. not like a thing you study that much for? Is it like a. I, so, candidly, I did a weekend crash course. Shout out to PowerScore. You guys got me. Uh, you guys got me. <laughs> like, Shout out PowerScore. Yeah, some, some guy named Mike. I forget what your last name is, but you were awesome. Shout out Mike. <laughs> yeah, it, was, it was good. The, um, I did like a, a weekend crash course. I'd done some, some test books, but the LSAT. Uh, at least when I was taking it, which would have been, unfortunately, like over 10 years ago. <laughs> Isn't that humbling? Yeah. Oh, my God. Time just flies by. <laughs> but uh, it, it's it's an aptitude test in a lot of ways. So it's like the logic games, either you get it or you don't. Reading comp is something you kind of like get or you don't. And your score, you know, if you coach yourself and work really hard and you practice, a lot of it's time management, honestly, and, and being able to get through the questions and answer each one within the period of time that's allotted. Mm-hmm. Um, but... You're you're limited, really. I've seen people who, if you come out and you score like uh, like a 120, you're never going to get like a 170. Yeah, it's just you just lack you know that type of quick thinking and everything else. It's going to be able to to do that. So I think the LSAT's a good test and just mental aptitude. You will use absolutely nothing that you study for it in law school. So (laughs) like every other test you take, like everything else. So it's it's one of those things where it's like. You, know, you don't want to spend it's not like the MCAT where you have to really study no organic chemistry and all this other yeah. stuff. It's it's a lot of it is you take a practice test, you see how you do. If you do pretty well on a practice test and you're like, oh maybe there's something here and you take a you take a study course. Um, I think the other thing is a lot of people come to law school not directly out of college. So they have the time to kind of take it on their own schedule. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Else at a testing center and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and that really creates a a interesting environment in terms of how the test is scored uh, because it's comparative so everything is on a curve essentially the same way you'd be graded in a law school how long does it take to take the LSAT 
It's a day. I think it was a day. It's a day? Bit. Yeah. The state bar was longer. I remember that being worse. Do we need to find, like, an online version? <laughs> we got to take it, yeah. <laughs> and Actually, take there's, it. There's practice tests, yeah. Is there, there really? I'll, I'll do it. I'll take that. You, yeah. you, you, I'll do it. You want to yeah. do a challenge and see, like, who, who the gets best? the best yeah. score? Yeah. 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 I'm so throwing that gauntlet down. I'm not okay. doing it. Though, no, yes. I don't think so. Yeah. <laughs> like, I've never, never done it. I think you've done what you need to do. It's the most fun I never want to We can't crash course it. Let's just, like, wing it with, like, whatever experience we've had today. Yeah, no power score. Just yeah. you know, let's I go was for I it. was talking about that with another lawyer the other day. Just another another awful test, but it was the state bar in this one. The year that I took it, um, the state bar actually resulted in a bunch of people getting food poisoning because they what? were what? Yeah, they required so all the law schools had like a lunch right like at the state bar. This would have been the year I took it. See, I graduated law school, so it would have been July 2016. I want to say I'm not don't don't hold me to that. I want to say that's a word. Coming but, back to that. Oh, definitely. <laughs> the uh, <laughs> the State bar required people to use their caterer that they had selected. And then okay. that caterer, if you had, I think it was the tuna or the turkey or some specific type of sandwich that day. It took them all out. Yeah, and luckily it was the second day of the bar. It wasn't the first day, and it was lunch. <laughs> but during the second half of that exam, there were people running to the bathroom. Oh, no. <gasps> no. Yeah, they got sued. Like, there was, like, a whole thing. It was, like, a, I mean. The Georgia bar. Probably the last thing you want to do is piss off as a group of up-and-coming <laughs> yes. lawyers. And yet the bar does it over and over again. Like, there was one. I have one friend who passed the bar twice. They told her she failed the first time, and she didn't find out until after she had passed it a second no. time. She oh, no. Oh, that would be. That would be something. And that was the year before me. So that was like, I think it would have been 2015. It's just back-to-back kind of big screw-ups for the state bar in terms of administrating the bar exam. Oh, man. Oh, Someone probably got a new job. Blame them for the food poisoning. Like, no one expects your That's true. That's not. Absolutely. That, to that is totally the not their fault. It's a flip. But yeah. I just can't believe that. Okay. So we had started off chemistry. Mm-hmm research not gonna do that what else would if you today you needed a backup plan what would you go do that's always a great question it's so funny i i really am well suited for what i do and i can't imagine my life not being a lawyer which is a very interesting i think that if i were not going to do it i would want to do some kind of menial labor like i would want (laughs) to like i would want to do something with my hands you know what i mean like i would want welding Craftsmanship, I don't know, some kind like of like sword building. Or... From what I've seen, is a practicing attorney. <laughs> I'm sure there's an official term. Is there a job still? Can you do that? Oh, there's like yeah. shows. Oh, yeah. yeah, they have shows. Yeah. Medieval times. They had swords at medieval times. People still buy knives, y'all. Be a knight? Is that an option? Yeah. Yes, oh, you would. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. I would be such sure. a good knight. I would. <laughs> yeah, all the skills. No, you wouldn't, Evan. You cannot keep a straight face at all. You would be talking to every single person who walked by you, like. I enjoy you, but you would be a terrible knight. <laughs> okay. Anyway. You'd be like yeah, across right? the battlefield, like, yo! <laughs> hey! Catch so that sorry. movie! Let's just call it a tie and go get a glass of meat. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Grab a turkey These egg. lords don't care. Yeah. Let's just... Uh, why are our family feuding anyway? Let's hash this out. You know we don't got to fight. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that would end Game of Thrones much sooner. Yeah. Everyone just chill. Yeah, would be... <laughs> Oh, man. (laughs) What is your favorite thing about what you do? Mm. So it's really what I do now is interesting um, because for the last four years, I've gotten to run my own firm, which means I've gotten a lot of discretion in terms of how I how I deal with my clients. And I think one of the best things for me, like the warmest feeling what helps me sleep at night is that we're legitimately helping people. Mm, Yeah. So to hear when I talk to a client 
that you know they're sleeping well or they're they're not having problems that they had where they were having you know ulcers or stress related panic attacks because Leo just be so stressful right I get that for me it's yeah. become I've become desensitized to it because it's yeah. what I deal with day in and day out but for my clients um, whatever they're dealing with it gives them a headache if they're trying to think about how they're going to deal with it and it's just something that, that they they're not really equipped to deal with themselves so it becomes a source of immense stress just the not knowing. Uh, not being sure what the next thing entails, what the road forward looks like, being able to spend the extra time every day and not bill people for it necessarily, but to sit around and talk with clients to make sure that they understand uh, what the next step looks like, what their rights are, what their limitations to those rights are. I think it helps people feel a lot better. And that's the coolest thing about getting to be an attorney is that you can be a, a, like a weighted blanket for your client. Yeah. And, and you know, your call is important to them. Yeah. Um, but their comfort is very important to you. And mm. it's, it's really great to be able to give people that peace of mind that they didn't have before. Yeah. What was your, did you always know you were going to do IP? Did you ever do anything other than that? So it's funny. I really, originally just my goals were set and my, my sights were set on being a patent attorney. Um, that was the goal for a very long time. It took me three tries to pass the patent bar, and it, that was all because of so, yeah, the, the the college kind of <laughs> patent so attorney it, who being told a off the chemistry in the teacher. U.S. is really weird. Yeah, you're only allowed to be a patent attorney if you have a science, technology, engineering, or mathematics background. Oh, and there's a statute that, that has a list of majors, so you can immediately see how this is an absolutely terrible system. Whoa, I have a chemistry degree. Yeah. I know another attorney who had to go and take all of these other equivalence exams and everything because her degree, albeit it was in molecular molecular polymer engineering, and it was like something to do with clothes, she'd taken way more high-level <laughs> science <laughs> classes than me. Like, she was way more scientifically inclined than my bachelor's of arts in chemistry and just in general chemistry with a minor in philosophy. Like, this woman had worked in industrial labs yeah. and had high-level knowledge of that. But because her degree was a specialized degree that wasn't listed in the statute, she didn't qualify to sit for the patent bars. Wow. There's no qualitative judgment at all. It's just, it's a, it's a one or a zero. Wow. That is crazy. It's wild. So your chemistry degree just kind of happened to work out? Yeah, yeah. basically. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> you know, good, good, good fluke luck, there. Luck is a huge part of the, whether you're playing fantasy football or you're going to court, luck is a huge part of the game. I'm mm-hmm. only 10 right now in my league, so I feel that. Yeah. It's, and luck just sometimes just doesn't go your way. I mean, other times you'll score 150 every week. You know, you never know. Not this week. No, my hobos are on the way down, too. They're definitely I'm <laughs> like flies, but bad luck. I'm using all my luck up in court. Yeah. That's the best place to use it. Yeah, my, my priorities are way off, I know. But, the, um, yeah, it's very interesting. So that was my original goal, right? Like, okay. I'm going to take this test, and I failed it by one question each time. It's an electric exam. So you have, just kind of rewind for a second, you have your state bar, right? That yep. allows me to go in and practice law in state courts. Okay. If I go through and get barred up to the highest level, so if I get barred into the Supreme Court of Georgia, which I'm currently a member of, at that point, I'm then able to be barred into the Northern District of Georgia, the federal system. The federal system requires you to be a member of the highest bar of your court. So at the time, basically, you start taking the state bar, move through the state system, get barred into the Supreme Court of the state, and then you can enter the federal system. Okay. Um, once you're in the federal system, it's fairly easy to get pro hoc VJ or for this yeah. matter admission to other federal district courts. Okay. So my home district court, actually, is the Northern District of Georgia. Um, I've litigated cases, though, in two different district courts in New York. I've litigated in two different districts in California. I've litigated in Florida just for specific matters where my clients yeah. happen to get sued in those courts. Gotcha. So okay. that's the litigation side. And all of that only really requires that you take a state bar examination and that you be sworn into court and become an active attorney who pays their dues and does their CLEs and that sort of thing. Yep. 
Uh, on the other side of things, you have the patent bar examination. And what the patent bar examination allows me to do is to apply for patent registrations before the USPTO. Mm -hmm. um, and that is a highly specialized test. And it's basically an exam on your ability to go through this document called the MPEP, uh, or the, the manual for, for patent examination effectively. Um, and that test is just really, really hard. It's the hardest standardized test, admission test I've ever taken in my life. Uh, you know, SAT, LSAT, state bar, they are nothing compared to the, the really? patent bar. And the patent bar is a weird test too because there's no continued legal education requirement. So I could have taken the patent bar on paper in 1992 and if I'm still a practicing attorney, Fine. You got it. Yep, like you're good. You you're good for life. Yeah. There's no like continuing. Do the laws no change frequently? Oh yeah. Oh, oh so like times, like you yeah. would kind of want the some, MPEP like, is re-released every six months. Like there's 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 changes in the, there's like there, the American Vents Act in 2013 completely overhauled the patent system, and then you also have court decisions that affect that, which happen periodically. Like a great example for that would be the Alice decision that basically made a lot of software unpatentable. That goes, and there, there's hmm. entire chapters of the MPEP and guidance from the Patent Office yeah. in terms of, and this is all based off of constantly evolving legislation yeah. and constantly evolving litigation and court stuff. So it, it's a moving target for sure. The other thing that's weird about that is they don't know how many patent attorneys there are. What? Well, think about it. Like, who doesn't yeah, if you know. don't have to like, redo anything. I could die today. I could get in my car, go out there, and get hit by a tractor trailer and die. US, USPTO would not know. There, there's no ongoing requirement for me to pay any type of, of bar dues or anything like that. There's what? Yeah. yeah that's, oh, I hadn't thought about it from that like standpoint, but <laughs> it's how you, wouldn't you want to know how yeah. many there are? Just to check in. Just to check in. Yeah. yeah. So just to check in. There's tons make sure of people on the rolls that either aren't practicing law anymore or deceased, have moved on to other things. Like there, there's so many kind of like that that's the funniest thing is no one's really completely and totally sure how many actual practicing patent attorneys are in the United States. That's wild. Yeah. It's that really is, weird. That is wild. There's obviously good estimates and there's firms that employ hundreds or thousands of very reputable patent attorneys. Um I've had the unfortunate uh, experience of having gone up against some of them and they're very good. <laughs> <laughs> they're very good, let me tell you. They do their research. They they're definitely prepared. I've seen I've seen the hour sheets they submitted when they try to get fees from us. They put in a lot of work. <laughs> So I you did. graduate from law school, mm -hmm. you join a firm. Mm -hmm. About three years of, uh, we'll, we'll say, murky practice. We'll leave that in okay. the, the plead the fifth. I don't like to talk about what I did before. I, suffice oh. to say that I defended a lot of big, bad companies. And, and it's you know it was just, it wasn't where I wanted to be in law. So the way that I kind of look at my legal career as a practicing attorney, it was like yeah. reborn in January of 2019, where I was like, gotcha. I'm going to work for myself. So yeah. what was your first case like? Can you? For my my firm right now, I was gonna say yeah. yeah well, I, was gonna I, say I think first in general. I have this. Yeah. Pitch. I have an elevator pitch. It's fine. Like I definitely okay, have cool. to have this conversation with people because if you're convincing someone to give you money for your advice, it usually has to have a story that comes with that. Sure. Um, just ask any pastor. This so, is not your yeah. most interesting case. <laughs> this is your first case. So my first, I was, I'll say my first paying client. There we go. Um, my first paying client was actually a friend's father. I was moonlighting at the time. Uh, the firm that I was w working with, uh, their, their malpractice wouldn't cover it. Um, it was just because it was outside of the scope of what they wanted to do. I think mm -hmm. that was a fun way of saying we are not really interested. We don't see this as a big moneymaker. Uh, yeah. Um, I'd done a lot of pro bono work on the side. I'd set up a professional corporation in order to do that for the exact same reason. Mostly copyright litigation defense. Um, you know, more on that later, but essentially people are being taken advantage of by abusive litigants who are filing lawsuits against them because it only cost them a couple hundred bucks to do it. And they were using that to extort $10,000, $20,000 at a time wow. from people who really didn't owe them that money. 
Um, but it was just if they were going to go and try to hire a law firm, it was going to be a ten thousand dollar retainer, and then they were still going to have to sell for something down the road. So uh, that's called pa- or that's called copyright trolling, and just generally speaking, that's called trolling. It's a bad thing to do, and you shouldn't do it um, <laughs> anywhere. But I had done a bunch of those, but they weren't paid. Like yeah. I had, I had made appearances, I had argued cases, I I basically just chewed out copyright trolls. Um, but I'd never, you know, had a pang. So I don't consider that to be really like a client client. Like obviously they're a client's fiduciary relationship. I went to court and defended yeah. them, but that wasn't pushing me towards where I'm at today. My first paying client is a guy I still work with a lot. He's a friend's dad. Um, and he was just really tired of paying a very exorbitant fee for his New York lawyers. He was going to work as chief actuary, um, at a large insurance company mm-hmm. and he had a lot of intellectual property. He had a lot of patents that he had filed and everything else. So it made the negotiations complicated because one of the things, and this is something anybody who is on your listener base should look out for if they work for a big company. Um, most of the times your employment agreement assigns all inventions to the company. Yeah. Doesn't matter if you invent them on work time, doesn't matter if you, you know, use company resources or not. And a lot of them have hangover provisions for a year. So it's saying anything that you invented the time you work for us, and within a year of leaving our employee, we own. Wow. That's very common. Very, very, very common, uh, especially if you're working for a larger company in employment context, just because they never want to get trolled for patent stuff. So um, when you're coming into a new company, right, and let's imagine this isn't for, you know, every – if you're just, you know, like an account manager or something like that, it can be very difficult to have these negotiations or even get legal's attention. But when you're talking about a chief position at yeah. a publicly traded company that's going to be paying hundreds of thousands of dollars a year – you know, they want the guy, right? So legal is willing to engage in a little bit more of a conversation. And nine times out of 10, it's quite simple because they're like, hey, just list the patent numbers for an application. We'll exclude these by reference from your contract. Mm-hmm. But you need someone to take the time to talk to company corporate yeah. and, to, and to have the conversation. Like, Prakash, if you're listening to this, which I seriously doubt you are, but in case you are, I love you to death, but you are a talker. So, <laughs> <laughs> so he needs to understand, but he needs to understand. That's the thing. And that's one of the reasons a lot of our clients are really, really brilliant. And mm-hmm. it's not just, they, they, they look at this legal stuff and they say, oh, like, I'm so stupid. I can't understand this. And it's not that you're stupid. It's that I have spent a decade or more learning about this in order mm-hmm. to be able to provide the answers to you that a lot of times do map to common sense. Yeah. But it gives you that peace of mind and everything else. And it also gives you a representative. I think the other thing that's nice about a lawyer as an advocate is you can blame things on the lawyer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's like if he was trying to negotiate that for himself, right, or anyone is trying to negotiate a contract for themselves, the other side might be able to provide pressures like, hey, we really want to work with you. You just need to sign this damn thing. Um, if you have an attorney that you can blame that on, you're like, oh, well, I'm not signing it because my lawyer says I shouldn't sign this. Mm-hmm. No one can really come back and say, you know, Screw your stick in your lawyer's eye. Do that. Like, no, I paid this guy for his advice. I'm going to follow it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so, but as long as you're being reasonable as an attorney, there's a way forward. It's like, hey, why do you want? There's a logical reason, right? Like in the instance yeah. we're talking about here, where he owns these other inventions, the company may or may not license, may or may not use, may shelf, may just prevent him from using elsewhere, may not put any effort into it yeah. until he goes and does it on his own and makes a ton of money and then show up and say, that's ours. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the question then becomes, you know, it's a very complicated thing, and you want to make sure that you have somebody else you can kind of fall back on to say, well, the reason, you know, I'm not doing this because my lawyer says they're not, and then I have a logical reason to say that you're not. And obviously, like, you're collateralized away from that pressure, and I don't care as much because it's not my contract. I'm just operating from, like, an objective position of reason. Yeah. I'm not trying to argue with you because I'm, I'm thinking I'm going to get more out of it. I'm literally just arguing with you because my client shouldn't agree to this, and I'm not, I can't advise him to agree to this. Gotcha. Okay. 
Now I'm going to go back and read my employment contract. No. (laughs) 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 That's the biggest thing is like when you're going to do any major deal. Yeah. It's one of the things I tell because we represent a lot of small, medium sized businesses, right? My firm has only a very small number. It will be four in January. Um, so that that's small, though. That means that we mainly serve smaller businesses. We have some clients that do have lots of employees. There's some larger ones that we represent now as we've gotten a little bit more of a reputation established kind of, of, yeah. of book and people see what we can do and how cheap we are. Uh, not cheap, good value. <laughs> good but the, um, value, yes. Good value. There's no way that you spend that. Well, you know, you, know it, it's, it's, you have to spend it a little bit because if you say cheap and then someone gets an invoice with a comment, they're like, this is not cheap. The, um, yeah. But... You took up hours and hours of my time. You'd be amazed at how often that happens. I have clients that just want to talk about their issue to death, which I'm happy to do. But then it's they go, well, hours. You have, well, why are you charging me for this? And my rate is low. Okay. My rate is half of what it it's could be. It's reasonable. Yeah. Practical. I, I get efficient. it. It's I get affordable. It. Affordable. Affordable. And it's, well, the biggest thing is I want people to have access to good legal advice because mm, that's what like the that. big companies have. Yeah, they have, absolutely. So you need that to be able to compete in this world, to have yep. this. You need access to the same resources. It's like if you're fighting an insurgency against an established military, you need guns. You can't yeah. go out there and try to beat them down with sticks and stones or stuff you made in your backyard. You need someone to help Swords. you out. We we needed Ted when we got our cease and desist, and we had to rebrand <laughs> know, our whole company. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we can talk about that off air. Uh, yeah, we'll we can. Off air. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We the I do talking. like use it a little bit as like that sounds like clout. a prospective client privilege. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so what was your path to your own firm? Like, what happened? Yeah. Not what happened. You don't have to give us oh the dirty God. dirty details. Oh, you I can. Mean, I can't unfortunately. The um, but I. I'm happy to just provide some generalizations. Yeah, um, love a generalization. Yeah, big, big law firms. You can read are between meat, the lines. Big law firms are meat grinders. Uh, they and they exist in a very improprietous system. If you are an associate attorney, um, let's say you're working at a big firm, we'll call it you know firm and firmly. The uh, <laughs> firm and this firmly. podcast has been sponsored by firm, firm and, and firmly. firmly. <laughs> We've got firmly on next week. It's yeah. crazy. Firmly is the litigator. You got to watch out for firm. <laughs> firm is cool. Firm's fine. Firmly though. Mm-hmm. The um, you so let's let's look at the big. Let's say a big firm, right? You yep. have generally a, a vast majority of the people that firm are associates. They're they're salary workers, and the associates make good money by anybody's estimation. So an associate at a big law firm these days could make two hundred to three hundred thousand dollars as a fairly yeah low level employee. It's a good deal until low you start level. crunching the well as you start until you start crunching the numbers. The firm is expecting usually somewhere in the neighborhood of twenty five hundred to twenty eight hundred billable hours per year from that individual. Get out okay. my calculator. Yeah, let's get the calculators. I'll come down to that too. How many did you say? The firm is going to expect let's say in a low end billable twenty two hundred hours a year. Okay, that's that would be like the destination boutique law firm. I haven't even got my calculator okay. open yet. You've already done math. So you've, you've got that. It's 2,200 hours a year they expect in yes. terms of billables from you. The firm is going to bill your time probably on an average of about $400 an hour. Times 400. So what does that firm's revenue off your time for that year look like? Oh, I don't think I did my math right. I'm so sorry. <laughs> okay, do that again. <laughs> Start over. <laughs> Start over. Start over. You know your calculator. Here, there you go. You do it on there. Okay. So you got 2,200. Yeah, I'm bad at math too, guys. It's 2,200. That's right. I did the math wrong. And then 400. So the firm's making $880,000 a year off of your time. Oh. And you're getting paid the 200 Generally to 300. speaking. It's a great we, business model. We, <laughs> it's a great business model. the partners, yeah, because you've got somebody who's working their, their bones off to make yeah. you got to, so you can afford a pool at your vacation home. 
Mm-hmm. Like, so 2,200 hours. 42 hours a week. Well, then if you want to see something crazy, go and you can But you don't all. even have like, well, there are, how many weeks are in a year? 2,200. 52. Divide by 52. Yeah, so about 42 billable hours a week. It's not crazy. Mm-hmm. That's not crazy. No, but that was a minimum. And 1,800 is, a, yeah, and, 18, and a lot of people see the minimum because they want to get their performance bonuses too. The, um, and there's a lot of things that firms do to encourage people to become totally reliant on that money because it is a high level of income from yeah. anyone's perspective, right? So they right. encourage lifestyle inflation. They say, go get a nice car. Go get a house. Uh, get a mortgage that costs you $2,500 a month. You can afford it. But you see the thing. It's golden handcuffs. You yes. can't go anywhere. So they yeah. can work you like a rented mule. And meanwhile, they're pocketing 90% of what you're bringing into the business. Mm-hmm. So being a partner is a good hustle if you're at a big firm. But it, yeah. it's also partner track comes with an immense amount of toxicity, fraternity mindset, um, and then off, and, and then just the, the background business pressures. Do you have a book of business? Are you maintaining it? Is there a reason that they would cut you in? But the other thing that's yeah. really crazy is you go and look at the AmLaw 100, the 100 highest billing firms in the world, mm-hmm. and you can break them down because they basically tell them themselves, and you can look <laughs> at how much revenue they're making on average per partner per year. And a lot of these firms are over a million dollars a partner a year. Some of them, I think Kirkland Ellis is like $3.2 million per partner per year. They're, they're the, the big boys. They're the biggest earning, highest average. Kirkland Ellis is like really, really well run. But that's wild because you start thinking about it. Well, at the firm's bill, the partner's probably not billing everything they do, right? Because a lot of the time the partner works is just client management relationship. They're having conversations, going to golf courses, doing that sort of thing. I mean, partners still bill. Some of them work really, really hard. That's the reason their second or third marriages fail. But <laughs> the, um, what happened to the first one? Oh, that was cheating, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody gets a mulligan. You know, it's, <laughs> Not my husband. Multi, a multi-million dollar mulligan in some of these cases. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, for her to go date her jujitsu trainer or whatever. Just right, exactly. <laughs> but you don't care. You don't have time. Well, that's yeah. but that's so that's funny. One of the things that though is we kind of started our firm, and my business partner Justin is is really awesome. So sounding board on this is we didn't want to be those types of partners. We wanted yeah. to be people that value our associates, cut them in, give them a portion of what they earn, which a lot of firms do. Obviously, right? You need to co incentivize people. If you're working at a personal injury firm and your guy brings in a two million dollar judgment, you better cut him two hundred, three hundred grand as a bonus. Mm-hmm. Or sorry, no. You should cut him in a lot. My point, probably not, because yeah. that's that's almost the full contingency. But the idea is that you want to make sure that you keep good people who are rainmakers. Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, those people are supported usually by an army of associates who are just billing, 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 billing. Yeah, makes yeah. sense. There's a lot of burnout. I see how, people quit. How'd you find Justin, or how'd Justin find you? We went to law school together, oh. and it's, it's really interesting because we grew up about five minutes away from each other in huh. Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Go Eagles. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> sucks, you can but, edit yeah. that out. <laughs> eight, 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 eight one, I was trying to be 9-0, and oh, but we're 8-1. and one. I can't complain about it. The um, We're both huge Philadelphia Everything fans, 14 fans. And law school, he started two years after me. He's a little older than me. He worked for a family business in New York for a long time. Mm-hmm. But we met in law school and just immediately were like super good friends. He grew up five minutes away from me in Philly, just went to a different high school than I did. It's crazy. Um, share a lot of the same values. I think neither one of us, one of the biggest identifying factors when we started the firm was neither one of us had debt. That yeah. was something that we could we could afford to kind of take a risk because we didn't yeah. necessarily have the payments of Sally May. and. You know, as long mm-hmm. as I could scrounge up enough to pay my rent and eat, eat. yeah. The, Which um, ramen's kind of cheap. Ramen's very cheap. The, it is. Look, the first year that you're starting a new law firm, it is you're broke as a joke. I, it, it's 
because it's so hard to build up that book of business. Once you catch mm-hmm. momentum, like now I can't catch a break. Yeah. I don't even have all my invoices out for last month yet. <laughs> really? So, <laughs> my clients usually don't mind paying late. It's fine. I was going to say, I'm yeah. Yeah. Be okay. sure they're yeah. not upset about that. I, I work with people. Knocking your door down to pay their invoice. I, I, I work with people. I mean, I, I've never had to send anyone to collections. And if I have a client, it's like, look, I really, you know, if you don't got it, you don't got it. If you're done, you're done. I, I've stretched stuff out and taken payment plans or whatever we need to do to make something happen. I don't want someone to go without good legal advice or yeah. good representation because that can really impact you for such a long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The two things we don't do at this point, I will say, are criminal and family law. And those are things that probably impact you for the longest. Yeah. But. Yeah, uh, it, it's crazy. You know, if a lawyer has a bad job, if you pick the wrong person, uh, they can really, really, really disadvantage your interests. And unfortunately, yeah. there are a lot of not great lawyers out there. Yes. Yeah. That's something we definitely deal with a lot. Really? Oh, yeah. What's the weirdest thing about IP law that people don't consider? Oh, man. That you could, I mean, you're dealing with artists and inventors and, and creatives. So it, there's something weird every day. Every single day, I see something that tops the weirder thing I've seen the day before. <laughs> the, um, I've seen inventions for all kinds of strange. I had one guy call my firm. He said, I have this brilliant invention. And I, I can't tell anyone about it until you sign this non-disclosure agreement. I'm like, mm-hmm. okay, whatever. I'll sign the non-disclosure agreement. Um, let's just say it was, it was, suffice to say, it was, it was an invention entirely, one, definitely not patentable, and two, entirely based around measuring a certain part of a male anatomy. Uh, <laughs> not, not a chance. <laughs> so you took the case? No. <laughs> no. Like absolutely. what kind of invention? What? Like why is the ruler not suffice or or your well, hand? Or your hand? You like got volume and all kinds of other measure weight, density, circumference. I episode about that. <laughs> there for sure is. <laughs> But he had an invention. What did it do? Like blushing in and all. It added an extra three inches to it. Yeah, so all the men were going to buy it because this said. And then the other thing is like litigation is one of those things where it's just like stuff can go so far afield as you're starting to get into that and you're doing discovery. Like you just see wild, wild, wild things. We've done investigations where you know explicit text messages come up and that sort of thing, and it's just you oftentimes get to see beyond things that people thought were never ever going to be public. So. It can be very interesting in that effect. Um, without breaching privilege, you know, it's tough to, to go into that. But it, there's so many kind of different, just strange, eccentric people out there. Yeah. And the other thing that's funny about it, too, is that there's a lot of law around kind of either the morality. Uh, when we're talking about trademarks, morality is a big part of it. Uh, especially in today's day and age where the office has to toe this incredibly thin line. The whole point is that the trademark office isn't supposed to consider a lot of that stuff. Mm-hmm. However, there's things like the recent cancellation of the Redskins trademark. They mm-hmm. they found that to be offensive. However, there's also a ton of Supreme Court cases that say that people are allowed to register offensive marks. Mm. So there's just this this ongoing kind of strangeness. Some of the stuff you see is terrible. Obviously, like we've, we had one case that we've done – um, where we were asserting a patent against a uh, international pornography conglomerate. That one was interesting. Um, our client's patent was was circled around. It was a software patent. It was circled around ranking different files related to relevance and putting them into categories. So we uh, we sued the company that owns like Pornhub and UPorn and everything else. But as we get into this case, we start to find all this weird stuff about this company. Sure, it wasn't weird enough before. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it can get real weird in the back portions of that. But weird in a, not in a like, oh, there's a, you know, 
there's a, a person with dwarfism spanking somebody type of weird, <laughs> weird in that this is a company that owns 82% of the, or, you know, or over 80%. I'm not sure exactly what it is today. This was years ago we did this case, but uh, they've aggregated the vast majority of free pornographic content on the internet. And what appears to be a choice for most people uh, is, you know, they, they own the, the 20 biggest sites. So they're monopolizing pornography. They it's are. Like there's wild. 20 sites. <laughs> I, mean, I know. Oh, there's hundreds of sites. It's like, like, wait, it's, like a, it's like a third of the internet is pornography. It's insane. A third I feel of like the internet. Even, I feel well, like that's even generous to be honest. They make with you. billions. Yeah. The difference of between talking to girls about they make and boys. billions of <laughs> We're dollars. Like, what? Oh, I I look at all of my friends and I was like, you were disgusting. But the thing that was crazy about it was that like they just were they just completely sidestepped the fact that they're a porn company and based their entire arguments on patent law and they won the case. They found that my client's patent was unenforceable, and we went in front of a judge in in Los Angeles who agreed with them. My client didn't have the money to appeal, so the judgment stood, and their patents are effectively dead. So what was it exactly that these companies were using? So they had a patent for a software company mm-hmm. that ranked files. And what was the other thing you said? They ranked them and sort then of them categorized them. Yeah. So, so were these sites then using effectively? It was, it was all relevancy based. So they used a kind of the problem where our guys got in trouble is that they stated that there could be a number of different computer systems in which the invention was implemented, and that kills your patent. Um, if it's just a law of nature that's implemented into a generalized computer system, that claim is unenforceable. And the problem was that hundreds, if not thousands, maybe tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of patents were issued with that type of claim language. My client's patent was issued pre-Alice. So it didn't have any of the, the mm. language in it that would protect it from that. And it wasn't mm. argued in a way that would have avoided that type, that, that aspect of U.S. law that developed after it was patented. Uh, it was very general. And that was the thing. It was very vague, very general about relevancy and based searching. Um, it was just the other side wasn't really willing to negotiate pre-suit. They yeah. just, just kind of ignored us. And the only option was to really file a lawsuit, you know, drug it out, drug it out, drug it out, file dual Rule 12 motions, hundreds of pages of briefing and a hearing later. The judge just didn't buy what we were selling. After 45 minutes of, you know, he grilled. Reading the trial transcripts, by the way, for hearings that you lose. It's like watching game tape. I've only had to do it twice. It's so heartbreaking. <laughs> Is it really? Yeah, because you're like, I tried my hardest, and I say, um, way too much. That's what I've learned from reading <laughs> Right. You can tell from the jump. I mean, the first question out of a judge's mouth in that one was something along the lines of, could you please explain to me how your client has a legally valid patent? And I was just like, the office issued it? And he's like, okay. <laughs> <You're> <laughs> like, um... I was like, well, I'm about to get smoked. And like, I turn around and look at my client. And he's like, you got this. And I'm like, we definitely do not. <laughs> I appreciate the faith, my friend. I, I mean, I'll fight the good fight, but like, we, I'm going straight to the bathroom without making eye contact to opposing counsel. And these guys flew in from New York. Yeah. They brought in this, like, huge, this firm called Venable. It's, like, this huge international patent law firm. Um, we know because then the crazy thing about that is, like, not only did they murder my client's patent in a courtroom, <laughs> the then tried to, to go in the same lawsuit. They filed a motion against my client for fees, alleging that my <laughs> client owed them the defense fees associated with doing that. I couldn't imagine what those would have been. Uh, it was about a half million dollars. <gasps> they tried to seal the record because I don't think they wanted people to know how much they were billing their client. Wow. And it came out, it was a half million dollars plus, I think it was going to be like another 200 probably associated with the the motions practice on the fees motion if they got it. Luckily, I mean, without going too far into it, like our local counsel obviously was not happy. Shout out John Lord if you're listening, you're the man. I appreciate you very much. You rode with me through a tough time. We we owe you, man. We owe you. You know, I'm going to pay you back one day. But the... um, 
John was great. We had a very experienced patent litigator that helped us through it. But I mean, he knew I was going to get smoked the second I walked in there too. <laughs> yeah, we, we had a, we had an inkling, right? You research the judge before you go into these cases. Mm-hmm. And in this yeah. case, the judge had spent a long career working as a, law, a large law firm that defended big companies. So we um, had a feeling he was going to have a little sympathy for the devil when we were in there. And the uh, <laughs> he definitely did. But the one thing I will say is he at least could tell that we asserted everything in good faith because he issued an order denying their motion like the next day but my client was freaking like my client was freaking out because he thought they were going to be like they were calling bankruptcy lawyers because they thought they were going to be on the hook for like over a half a million dollars yeah Yeah. and they're they're like can we keep this in the corporate shell are they going to be able to come after my personal assets like there was all these like intense anxieties and conversations for weeks on end just Call, 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 call. And it's like, look, I really don't know. We're going to, like, I, as a matter of fact, every minute I'm talking to you is less time I can spend writing the brief to try to. <laughs> the, the thing was, is they tried to hold us accountable as a, as a firm, too. They tried to say that the firm should have to pay for a portion of the defense fees. Oh, oh my. Why? A very obscure argument under federal law in Section yeah. 11 of, of, of the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure. Um, but our, I mean, we were considering hiring expert witness uh, ethics experts to testify. We were considering a motion to strike replies that existed things in, in the midst of all of that, this judge came down and Scarcy, if you're listening, which I seriously doubt you are, cause you're a federal judge with a lot going on, but he's on you, the next he's podcast. He's our favorite. Yeah. Well, well, yeah. Mark, Mark, we have to firmly. Yeah. Judge Scars, I mean, I, I think he was fair, right? Like, obviously, there's a lot of negative feelings when you go through a lawsuit like that and you lose. You put, you know, eight months of blood, sweat, and tears, thousands of dollars of your own money into it, fly across the country, mm-hmm. stay in a hotel, run a car, and just to go in there and get you know, smoked out in, like, 45 minutes. Uh, it, it's tough. And, the, and then your client's pissed, right? Your client's mm-hmm. sitting there and their assets are dead. Um, that It's a tough day. But with that said, I do feel we got a fair shake. Yeah. yeah. Like, he heard us out. He gave me a chance to try to argue. Then he just wasn't buying what I was selling. <laughs> you were trying. Yeah. Did the fact that it was, like, adult content have any play no, into it? No, they didn't it? care at all. No. They completely disregarded that. I mean, that was – as they should, because uh, it, it doesn't really matter. When you're talking about a patent, you're talking about utility. It wouldn't have mattered under the way those claims were structured if it was adult content, um, you know, if it was – anything else it could have been youtube it could have been instagram it's just we went after those guys because they had bags and we thought that they would be willing to pay and it turned out we were very wrong we miscalculated <laughs> they thought the, you um, were willing to pay <laughs> they, they i mean i don't think they thought we were able to pay and that's why they were coming after the law firm and i think they thought right. i was had it much better i remember there was a, a different negotiation that we'll, we'll keep this as vague as possible because i don't want to violate any type of client privilege but my client owed somebody some money and they were calling and they were yelling like well, what if, if he doesn't pay me by x date what what can i do like, you, you're already suing him, so I'm not sure exactly what you want to do. But <laughs> he was like, can I come and take his house? I was like, probably not. The, um, he said, well, then, you know, if you really believe he's going to pay me, and I was like, he says he's going to, and he's like, well, if you really believe he's going to pay me, you should put up your house. And I was like, I was like, all right, well, first of all, because this is like a very rich guy, I was like, I have, I don't own a house. I own, a, at the time, I own a condo. And if you, I don't think you want it. It'll make you very sad. <laughs> It's a loss. But it's crazy. I deal with crazies every day. I mean, that's the biggest thing is other people are crazy and so unethical at times. Like, it is absolutely what The number of times I've dealt with, like, scumbag opposing counsel, it's, and it's not, like, it's 50-50. Like, I definitely have calls with opposing counsel. I've had a bunch this week that have gone, and they're very professional, and they understand there's a dispute. They just want to get to the bottom of it. I also have had calls in the last week where people are, are, are just, like, threatening things that are totally out of pocket and we know aren't realistic, but we have to tell our client they're threatening them. Yeah. And it's, it's definitely, like there, there's, there's a certain amount of gamesmanship involved with that. 
just like in the case with the pornography. Like we would, we would really want the court to note that there is pornographic content involved in this, even though it's not super super relevant. We at least wanted to be aware of it. Um, you know, that that pops up a good bit. We we see this sort of ad hominem attacks uh, when they don't have law on their side and their client has done something bad. A lot of times they'll attack the lawyers. Mm. Uh, I cannot tell you the number of times. Like, if, if you want a hearing, and I, I've discussed this with other successful young attorneys, especially if you're a young attorney and you want a hearing against an older attorney, they will send you crazy emails, crazy emails about how you're unprofessional or they're going to drive by your house later. What? Like, what? Oh, because they're egomaniacs, a lot of them. Like, they're old white men who haven't been told they can't do whatever the hell they want their entire life, so. Yeah? yeah. Really? This doesn't rattle me because it just reeks of insecurity, to be honest with you. Yeah. He's like, roll up. Yeah, what? Yeah. Roll up on, on my oh, condo. No. <laughs> yeah. I, I, got, I got a house now, and we, we are believers in the Second Amendment around there. So. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> My, my attack Pomeranian will notify me. You're, <laughs> you're nearby. <laughs> we'll come after you. No, it's stupid. I mean, it's stupid, right? Like, you're not a thug. You're an attorney. You're supposed to yeah. operate that way. But there's a lot of just like – and a lot of it, I think, is, is just the stresses and rigors of this job. Yeah. If you're going to do what we would call kind of like lower-cost work, right? You're trying to give people a really good deal, but you still want nice things. You're going to have to up your volume. Yeah. That's just the way that it works. So in a lot of the volume shops, like we've seen this a lot with evictions. Like there's so, especially the last year or two, so many wrongful or just even accident. There have been I've had clients where the landlords have accidentally evicted them. I'm so sorry. How do you accidentally evict someone? Like you get like a name they, and apartment number wrong. The, oh, the ledger. The ledger marked. They, they, there was somebody who hadn't paid and got the apartment number wrong, so they evicted <sighs> the wrong person. Yeah, have I've seen that. Have you seen like a eyes in like? You know, just evictions or even wrongful evictions in so recent years? It, it's it, The pendulum swings on, it, back and forth. Interestingly enough, the eviction ban was awful for landlords. Like, I have clients who had people squat in their houses for over a year, and they had zero recourse because during COVID, you couldn't evict anybody. Yeah. Huh. So these people stayed in their houses, saved I've money. Heard they another one. <laughs> they couldn't even get judgments. I mean, they were locked up in court, and I've, I've got cases where people were living rent-free at folks' homes for as long as 18 months. Holy cow. That's crazy. Yeah. Wow. We had it. a rental property for a while, and I will never do that again. It's stress. Really? It's, it was it was awful. It's bad. But like, it, it's, being a landlord low-key sucks. Like, you have a very expensive It high-key sucks. Yeah. <laughs> it high-key. <laughs> well, as long as, I mean, it depends. I've also, I've seen it both sides. That's one of the fun things about, a lot of firms specialize in doing either plaintiffs or defense work, and we do both. Yeah. Uh, I've represented defendants or plaintiffs. I'm representing both plaintiffs and defendants right now. They, uh. We just do general civil litigation. We're willing to do either side of that. Mm-hmm. And, of course, there's different billing structures, right? So if I'm going to go after somebody for a ton of money, maybe I take a contingency in that case. Can't do that for defense. There's no contingency to be had when you're just defending somebody. Yeah. So there, there's a lot of kind of perspectiving that goes into it. But I've noticed that people that get kind of bogged down in their own perspective, like say you are someone who only does plaintiff side work for personal injury claims. These people will talk about insurance companies like they are the devil. Yeah. And then you talk to an, someone who only does insurance defense work, and they have a word for plaintiff side lawyers and personal injury. They call them ambulance chasers. They think they're just yeah. chasing checks, following people down, and trying to profit off of people getting hurt. And there's a little grain of truth in either side's criticisms. Mm-hmm. With that said, I also know really great defense attorneys that just don't want people to you know, slip in jimmies to get paid. Yeah. Or you know, they, want to, you know, they want to settle cases fairly, but they don't want you know, to, to pay out improprietous mo- you know, money because that, what, that, what does that do? That spreads it across the rest of the risk of the pool. Like, if you think about that, the person who gets a fraudulent insurance claim paid out increases the cost of insurance premiums for every other person on that insurance company's side because the insurance company's got to pay for it somehow. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, there's, there's merits to either side of those arguments. 
Um, and if you work long enough, by the way, you, on either side of it, either a plaintiff or a defendant, you're going to get a scumbag as a client. Like it just, it happens. You know, they're, they're, it's just that, that is the nature of things. There's plaintiff's attorneys who I think are very upstanding people that find out their client's injuries aren't nearly as bad as their client advertises them to be. Um, there's people that find out their client's actually at fault for things that they, they said they weren't. Uh, and there's also instances in which defense, you know, folks that, you know, they're, they're defending claims because they can't settle a case if their client's not willing to pay it. Yeah. They might think the other side is definitely right, but if their client's not willing to settle the case, then they have no choice but to sit around and make their billables. So, you know, I, I think a lot of it comes with just having empathy for the other side. You'll be much more effective at settling cases and kind of resolving conflicts, which is what your goal should be as an attorney at the end of the day. Whether yeah. you're trying to register something with the USPTO, your goal isn't to, like, crush that examiner. It's to convince them to issue a valid patent for your client's stuff. Um, when the same is true when we're dealing with litigation, you know, if there's a dispute and someone says, you owe me money, and my, the other person says, I don't owe you money, usually the truth is they owe you money, just not as much as they claimed. Yeah. Like, yeah, that's that generally the, 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 the circle of that. So we find it's very helpful in our cases, even if they know they're outside of the realm of possibility to start throwing numbers out. I think that's one of the biggest things you can do is just start talking brass tacks right off the route. I mean, it, it's, it can seem a little sleazy sometimes, but... If you put a number on a claim and you're, you've done your research about it, there's no there should be no surprises after you file anyway. Yeah. So, you know, for instance, if we're representing a plaintiff. You know, maybe we're going to inflate the claim a little bit based off of we're going to claim the largest number we can in our demand letter. We've got to yeah. give ourselves some wiggle room to negotiate if the other side lowballs us. Mm -hmm. um, or maybe for an offense firm, you know, we don't think we, – we know that our client, say, owes them a little bit of money, but we don't owe them. It, it's inflated by like three acts. We're not paying that. Yeah. Uh, that type of situation. I still think it's helpful to throw out, even if it's a number that's lower than you would settle for on the defense or higher than you would take on the plaintiff side, it's helpful to throw a number out there because the other side can then throw their number out. You yeah. can kind of yeah. figure Just out. Okay, what it gets you talking. <laughs> what does our resolution <laughs> you know? look like here? Because yeah. that's the thing I will tell you, whether you're talking in, in, you know, in the sort of stuff I do, IP disputes um, or business disputes, real property, landlord-tenant, construction, just basic civil litigation. Uh, the longer it drags out, the less is going to be left in the pot for the, for the, the parties because yeah. either side has to pay their lawyers one way or the other. True. So it, it's always in your client's best interest to settle a case. With that said, a lot of people will privateer on that. So if you're an insurance company and you know, like, hey, you're almost lazy insurance company, I'm going to fight out a lot of these claims because, hey, maybe if I fight, you know, Every meritorious claim, one out of three will settle for less than you know a third of what they should. Well, as long as that cost that you save by settling at a lower number on that one case exceeds the cost of defense, it's just good business to fight every claim. Yeah. Mm -mm. Question on just filing a patent in general. Mm -hmm. Like, it seems like you go in front of a judge a lot, mm -hmm. right? So, what is the process from there? So, like, if I file a patent, do you? always have to go in front of a judge to get it like signed sealed delivered and then at what point like does another party get involved like in your porn case sure yeah like how when it gets filed did they just get like a red flag like hey no, no, you can't no. do that no, no, <laughs> like what happens i mean so, they don't even know how many attorneys they have filing patents they have a system exactly. of notification for the like hey male anatomy measure has been filed there are actually Stop great producing. stats on how many patents are filed every year the patent yeah. office is an interesting body of the u.s government it takes no taxpayer money it's entirely self-funded it's apolitical um, they produce an insane amount of data. They're very transparent. They try to be as open as possible. Uh, the trademark, the trademark aspect of things is entirely public. None of that is secret. Yeah, patents are kept confidential. So, 
let's just walk you through like the life cycle of a patent. Okay. Generally speaking, if you let's say I invented the, the aluminum can. Okay. A patent on an aluminum can would have a 20-year life from the time that I apply for the patent, meaning that if I invented the aluminum can, only I am allowed to sell or license the idea to other people for 20 years from the time that I apply. Mm-hmm. That is the general basics. Now, that said, there has to be a gatekeeper. Otherwise, I could go out and say, I patent air. Anyone who breathes owes me money. Right. Yes. So there are limits in terms of what is patentable subject matter, and then there are also three requirements to issue a new patent. And those requirements are, first, that it be useful. Mm-hmm. So in order to be useful, it's relatively low bar, but you can't just invent something totally useless and patent it. Um, the second aspect is that it has to be new, meaning that it has to be something that you've came up with, something that hasn't existed before. Mm-hmm. And then the third aspect of it, which is a little bit more wishy-washy, is it has to be non-obvious, quote-unquote non-obvious. And that means that, say I invent the aluminum can, mm-hmm. and aluminum was around, and before that there were iron cans in the exact same shape. It would be obvious to a person having ordinary skill in the art, or what the office calls a fosita, um, P H O S I T A, that we should combine aluminum and iron. So, until we get too far into the weeds, the idea is that there is a gatekeeper, an application process. And what happens is when you come up with an idea, you go to a patent attorney, the patent attorney agrees to consult with you. They look at it, they tell you, all right, either I think this is a very patentable idea, you can get an invention here, or I don't think this is, for X, Y reason, I don't think you're very likely to prevail in having a economically meaningful patent claim. So at that point, if the person decides to move forward, you apply for a patent. So you're not just automatically granted one, you have to okay. apply. Uh, drafting a patent application can range from like five to $10,000 generally in the low end and can be a lot more expensive. Like I've seen people, bigger firms that are doing complicated software stuff for Google will charge mm-hmm. $30,000, $40,000 a patent. Is that where that term economically meaningful yeah, <laughs> comes into you play? To, you know, like, yeah, of course you need to recoup the investment. But yeah. the thing that's funny about creating intellectual property, whether it's patents, trademarks, or taking the time to, to take photos and create copyrights, um, is it's one of the best ways you can create value in a small company. Mm-hmm. Because... There's so much like that's the thing. Five to ten thousand dollars seems like a lot of money, right? Yeah. But a patent's limited twenty year monopoly could theoretically be worth like I have clients whose patent portfolios have been valued by Berkeley Research Group at over a hundred million dollars wow. over five patents. So they can be worth a lot. If it's an addressable market, a lot of people use it. You can go out and license it or sue people who infringe on it as it becomes commonly adopted. Over that course of that twenty years, you could realize a massive return on investment, so long as the patent's a good one. Okay. That's so, why the Shark Tank, they always ask about that. About Do patent you have a- <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> it's tough. And the thing that's funny about that is it takes about three years on the short end to get a patent. Okay. That's the other thing. It takes a very long time. On the short end. Wow. Yeah. So uh, that, there's a, a cheap way to get patent pending status with a provisional application, but then you need to come back and file a full application a year later. I was going to so, say, so what happens over three years? You invent something. I say, hey, Ted, this is really great. You're like, yeah, that's pretty great. You know, let, let's go for it. Meaning? It's been three years. I've like perfected it. I've changed things. Right, yeah. You've got the best mode. So yeah. what I would sell for a lot of inventors, obviously, this is like a wishy-washy thing in the real world. And the biggest thing, if your listeners out there should know, is that you should never offer to sell something you think might be patentable until you have patent pending status. That's an absolute bar to getting a patent on it. Hmm. So... Once you apply for a patent, so once you apply for a provisional patent or a non-provisional patent and you get what they call a priority date, the date that you apply at the office, that is the date that you're basically everything runs from on your patent. Uh-huh. Your 20 years runs from that, but so do too does your protection. That point, you're legally allowed to put patent pending on your product. And the idea is that that puts the whole market on notice 
that they cannot copy this or the utility in that without doing it. A lot of people actually like to put their patent number on the products as well. You'll see them on a lot of different areas if you look very carefully. Oh. Like I bet if you look I know at, and we're like looking around the studio. Look at the, right I bet now? the bottom of that globe or okay, definitely the Coca-Cola bottles, a lot of those they'll they'll have a patent number emblazoned on them you, somewhere. You think Bob Ross has a patent yeah, let's take number? A look. Let's find them. I bet there's one somewhere. Bobblehead Ted. For sure Bobblehead Ted. This can't be Bobblehead's head. Do you think that's Bobblehead? I don't, I don't look like him at all. On that. It looks like somebody else, though, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, I, really, energy drink. I really I feel like this. they went after the nose on this bobblehead. Whoever <laughs> <laughs> like, designed this really so keyed we've in. Got, we've got copyright notices on the side here, for starters, on this can. And so the copyright, is that maybe on like the design of the can? Because but it's the same the, the can pictures, as my yeah. Yeah. Bob. The pictures, the pictures of Bob Ross. Bob Ross's name. You have a lot of copyrights and, and, and a lot of right of publicity in terms of somebody's name. Um, all rights reserved. I mean, you're finding a lot of stuff on that can. Yeah, I'm not seeing patent numbers on this one, though. You'll see them on a lot <laughs> oh, of... Bob Ross, we're coming after we're you. We're getting you, Bob. <laughs> the, um, after that can. But, I mean, if you look at, like, for instance, like a, an original equipment manufacturer part on a car, you'll see. Yeah. A US, yeah. U.S. patent, no, and then a certain... And if you type them into Google Patents, a patent will pop up. Um, no. That's the idea is you're putting people on notice of what your patent claims are. Yeah. So the process of getting one of those, uh, whether it's a patent or a trademark, which are the two things that are registered by the United States Patent and Trademark Office or USPTO, uh, there's an, someone called an examining attorney. And these are attorneys who work for the patent office. Um, they think of us as prosecutors in that case. We're effectively plaintiffs if you're going to look at that in the way okay. that you would a court case. And the examining, uh, and the examining attorney is effectively a defense counsel. Uh, the U.S. Patent Office is looking at that, and they're almost always going initial, to initially they're going to reject your patent application. If they don't, you probably have claimed too broadly or made a mistake. So, the way that they do that is they issue something called an office action or a non-final office action, which we often abbreviate to NFOA. Uh, but that process, they're basically saying we don't think your patent is issuable for X, Y, Z reason. Usually, you can get around those by either amending your claims, arguing with them. Sometimes they'll even issue something called like a notice of uh, allowable claims. So they'll say, you know, if you do X, Y, Z, then we would be inclined to allow this. Uh, they're willing to do examiner interviews where you can get on the phone with them and talk about like, hey, why don't you think this is enforceable? How can we modify that so it would be? Do you think it's too broad? Do you think it's obvious? How can I basically explain around it? Um, nine times out of ten with an issued patent, the way that that happens is the examining attorney and the prosecuting attorney agree on something. Just like in a lawsuit. Yeah. Most of the time, the defense lawyer and the plaintiff's lawyer will agree on things, and that is the way that we get things done. We come to a compromise, and we avoid wasting the court's time, and we don't drag our clients into two- or three-year disputes. Uh, the thing that takes such a long time in the patent office is if you apply for the most – you go straight to, the, straight to the source, although some people can get expedited examinant based on age or other things. Um, you probably won't get a response from the office for 18 months to two years. Really? Which is just crazy because that whole time you can be out there with your invention, selling it, doing things, claiming that you're going to get XYZ patent on it, and you really don't know. Yeah. Uh, if you can keep fighting, you keep filing new – as long as there's two co-pending applications, basically you can continue to a point where you will get some sort of patent protection. But having a good attorney who cares about your outcome and actually researches your case ahead of time is really important. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Of course things pop up. Like I've had – where I've applied for patents on certain things – uh, that you know, unpublished patent applications or things we didn't know about at the time the patent was filed do pop up. I've had pharmaceutical patents where we have seen absolutely nothing on the U.S. market. We've done tons of research, looked at the USPTO, looked at medical journals and everything else. And then two years later, the patent office sends us a notice that says, 
hey, here's a Chinese patent that was filed six months before yours. We, we didn't know about it until six months mm. ago. Oh. And it, by the way, yeah. it tells exactly what yours says and has an earlier priority date. So <laughs> you're, like, crazy. you're like, dang, well, original you know, thoughts. But that's the thing. is, It's possible, right? We've got 8 billion people on this planet. It's possible that yeah. one of those other 8 billion people had the same idea you did two months before you. So these are all just things to think about as you're applying for, for you know, patent protection, that sort of stuff. But it, generally speaking, it takes about three years to get an issued U.S. patent. And at that point, you get a really pretty wow. piece of paper that's got this gold seal on it, and it's got your name, it's got pictures of your invention, and a description of the legal claims and everything else. Uh, they're very addictive. People who get one tend to get two or three more, we've noticed. Over the course really? Of oh. Yeah. Is that financial, or is it just because, like, it's cool? Yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's... I. I have had clients that I've represented in the past and, and clients I represent now that make an immense amount of money off of licensing their patents. Really? Yeah. That's pretty much all they do. They invent things and then they license them out. Sell them to, to people. other people. Yep. Yeah. I mean, I guess it makes you sense. You know, like little, like, like the people who made the little antenna balls that go on the antenna antennas. Oh, sure. Like, think about those. Yes. Like, those were like a hit like 20 years ago. I feel like and it was like a little cycle. foam little thing that like went on your antenna. Probably every three to six months, somebody sends me a YouTube video of someone being like, oh, you're super rich. How did you get rich? He's like, oh, I invented the patent on this yeah. side of the other thing. Like there are people that hit moonshots like that. It happens. Yes. And that's one of the reasons that we say that even though there is a fairly high cost to establishing a trademark, trademarks are a lot cheaper, by the way. They're like $1,000. Um, and they're business goodwill. They don't protect in types of, of utility. Um, but when you do that, you can create immense value on the backside. So why a five to ten thousand dollar investment may look like a lot, yeah. If that ends up, off a lot. if it ends up generating a patent that you license for twenty, forty thousand dollars a month to some to some major mm-hmm. company, you know that could end up being worth quite a bit. So th- there's there's a great ROI if you have a good idea and you have a good patent strategy and you get an issued patent. Now the quote, and, and most of the time, people if they see a validly issued patent that they're likely infringing, they're pretty eager to settle. Because patent yeah. litigation defense is exorbitantly offensive or expensive, which we talked about earlier today. But the thing that's very cool about that is that it creates a passive sort of income for people over a period of time. Mm-hmm. So say that you invented some new sort of scanner that you then you – know, you spin it up into you know, a, a, an LLC that you own. And it's kind of like a side hustle for you. But you go out and you, you pitch it to a bunch of people. And then Home Depot agrees that for every store that we put this in – we're going to give you, you know, $300 a month or something like that. Mm-hmm. They agree to a, what they call royalty license. Um, if they really like your idea and it works really well, that can scale to the point where hundreds or thousands of stores around the country are using it and they're paying those license fees and they really, really add up. Yeah. That's the craziest thing is when you look at the cell phones that you guys have, there's utility patents, design patents, trademarks, all of that, especially if you're using an Apple device, their trademarks are the most valuable thing on there as a brand. Mm-hmm. So... Establishing brand protection, establishing patent protection, getting these things, they can become immensely valuable. I mean, the Coca-Cola trademark is probably worth billions of dollars. Really? So, yeah, because it's, it's the entire Coke brand and all the goodwill that comes with it, which is you know every, per, every country in the world that yeah. they ship to. Mm-hmm. And they've been around for 70 years and just, you know, that's, brands are very, very valuable. So that's the other thing is establishing trademarks is very similar. You go through a similar process. It's faster, but we generally don't hear back from the office for six, six to nine months after we apply. Sometimes they issue, sometimes they don't. Are people typically trademarking, obviously, I would think, their brand name Mm -hmm. and then maybe logos, Mm -hmm. marks, and then any product names? 
product names, what you would use is any type of identifier of goodwill. So a trademark is supposed to identify the source of a product. Like we're looking at a table full of trademarks right now. Hyperchat Social is a trademark, whether it's registered or not. White Claw it Guarantee is, is a Don't registered trademark. Don't come after trademark. me. I wrote TM next to it. It counts. <laughs> <laughs> so funny, it actually does. In, in a sense, he's not wrong. Hey! And there's, isn't there a difference between the registered and the TM? Like you yep. use them at different stages of the process? Precisely. So uh, the TM mark I have been through this process. <laughs> <laughs> Don't come after my Hyperchat Social Someone now. Someone got C indeed. The, uh, <laughs> Can you tell? <laughs> yeah, the, um, the TM indicates Soft an intention spot. for something to operate as a yep. trademark. Usually it means that I'm applying for it before the USPTO. It doesn't necessarily mean that, but that's what it means nine times out of ten. The R with a circle means this is a registered trademark, meaning it's a USPTO registered mark. Yep. You can go and look it up. You know, it's something that's on their, their, their profile. The reason you want a trademark, um, and we've done some trademark litigation. We've done a lot of trademark registration. Uh is because there's an instance in which you get to a certain size and someone is using a confusingly similar business name mm-hmm. and people are starting to get your products confused. So if We need to go after those people who we keep uh-huh. getting the subscription I cancellation know. emails we from. We do. I've looked at their website to see when they were established and like, yeah. By so the you way, guys we'll are call, trademark. We'll call you, you after. Are, are we're registered. We're fully yeah. registered with the logo, everything, the name, <laughs> our product names. We've I learned. Went, I went through. Yep. Did you apply for all that pro se and do it yourself? Um, no. Yeah. There's always, the attorneys can be really helpful. It's like the, the C&D really, really. Scared you, yeah. It, it pushed us. We had to rebrand everything. Wow. Yeah. And, yeah. That's crazy. It, it, it's a low key, like it's a little bit of like a, a it's a, a bragging ego boost moment. Yeah. That this large company, I mean, we weren't even in business, but a couple of months, less than a year, I would think, maybe a year. Maybe it wasn't like super. No, you're right. We had to been a little bit longer. I think it was it been two, two three years. years. Yeah, yeah, because it was when we switched into the agency model. Yep. And and we and how we picked a name was Rebecca and I started going blah 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 blah, and we were like, oh, that one sounds kind of cool. Okay, let's go for it. We'll slap it everywhere. We Damn. I don't think we did the trademarking process, awesome. whatever it was. And then all of a sudden, from a a major company, major. we got a letter in the mail saying you will stop. Using and that. it was not yeah. a similar business, my I odd. It was a However, software, wasn't it? It was a chat and relatedness of goods and services. It was very an, important. For it was an confusion. internal chat software, is what the name, and it was a product name. It wasn't the company's name. It was their product yeah. name. Interesting. Um, and yeah, we had to rebrand the whole company we, because of it. We did. We got. I I would agree with some sound legal advice that the cost to even argue mm-hmm. back that they were totally unrelated. Products, services, was it? Yep. It was not worth it. I have, in defensive postures, argued the same thing. That's that cuts both ways, right? Like, yeah. Big yeah. companies are big companies because so they don't like wasting money. So a lot of times when we've defended cases like that, and what I would suggest you do in the future is, if you get a letter like that, you say, "Okay, we think your trademark claims are horse crap. There's a very high bar. I don't think any I think the the goods or services are not highly interrelated. I think your chance of like your likelihood of success in a federal court is fairly low." With that said, we would prefer to avoid this dispute. Pay us ten grand to rebrand, and we'll do it. Dang, Dang it! Dang. This advice came too late. Yeah, but you could. But that's the thing is that cuts both ways, right? When yeah. people threaten, it's going to cost. Because they this totally money. bullied us. They and did. We fell for. I mean, you I need, did. I, was I think like, it was a bully just because of the name. We were I like, "Oh my bullies. god, we have to do it." They're going mean, to come I was after like, us. I'm not. They're not going to come after you. They got bigger fish to fry. So I mean, that's the biggest. We've, thing. Is, oh, like, thanks. Like such a big fish. Though. I do use it as an ego. I popped up on their radar though. Like that's pretty freaking cool. Big enough of a fish. I made it big enough of a stinky stink. It's a letter though. That's the thing. It's like it's a letter. A letter doesn't. 
doesn't cost that much to send. I mean, you really yeah. got to think about what, and of course the, the goal is to intimidate the other party, right? Yes. Cause you want to get them to comply with you without you having to pay them a dime. But with that said, the impetus to get something done, legally speaking, is on the party who wants someone to do something. Mm-hmm. So if somebody wants you to rebrand, they really ought to compensate you for it. Yes. Now, that would be pursuant to an agreement that says you will never, ever use it ever again. But it's going to cost them Which over 100 grand. We won't even mention them on the podcast. We're so scared of them. Well, oh, now I jealous. won't because now I feel like a doo-doo brain. <laughs> no, you're good. It, it, but look, the biggest thing we, we will be talking after. after. Yeah, oh, okay. I think you would just enjoy hearing the names that I'm are involved. Super interested. Yeah, especially it, to see what we were able to trademark I when have, I tell you what the original name was. Right. I have been see. I've seen so many people that will try to bully other folks. I think that's a very good word for it. Is there's a yeah. lot of like that bully mentality, and the only thing that beats a bully is getting a little bit aggro back with them. Because that's the thing is like I can tell you like my clients have taken very strong positions before and if the other side comes back and is like, you know what, you guys, you know, you guys suck and I'm going to, you know, if you go into court, you're going to embarrass yourselves. And especially when you're talking about a big company, you know, the PR nightmare that comes along with suing a small company and you don't make mm, money in trademark suits. That's true. I so would you stop cut with my three children around me and my two dogs on national television. <laughs> like, <Yeah. laughs> Your dogs would cry so you, too. And if you want to, but they if you want to spend, you know, it's going to be $20,000, $30,000 retainer to come after us, great. Otherwise, cut us a check for 10 grand today. And you, the other thing is, this is the other argument to that, right? They could spend their 20, 30, 40 grand and go to court and sue you guys, and they're not guaranteed to win. Absolutely. If they pay you ten, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars to rebrand, you're they guaranteed win. to rebrand. Uh-huh. Yeah. So that's the other I mean, you gotta keep in mind with the other side. Obviously, they're gonna try to push you, right? We can come after you and get attorney's fees. Although getting attorney's fees is a really high bar. But like you you can they, they threaten you and scare you and they use a big law firm and everything else. So the other thing that's very interesting that I would mention, real story from real lawyers. And yeah. The, uh, <laughs> big law firm we doesn't want to trademark mean... that. We should we should trademark that. Oh yeah. The uh, big law firm doesn't mean good legal work. Yeah. I think that's the other thing is like a lot of people think about that. Like I have seen my clients get in disputes with businesses that are the same sizes, and both of our clients call them five million dollar a year revenue companies. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm cheap, valuable, but not. That's right. Know, not, We're not, not using that word anymore. Not inexpensive. Um, but they, you know, some this company comes up and they think we're going to steamroll small little Ted four person law firm and we're going to go and we're going to hire this, you know, thousand person mega firm. My client gets individualized attention from an attorney who has experience in court and actually cares about the outcome of their case. Yeah. They, on the other hand, are nothing to their defense counsel. Their defense counsel is not going to engage. They're not going to send formal letters. They're not going to want to have to deal with it. Because that's not a big cash flow. And you know what they're going to do is they're going to build a crap out of them, too. Mm-hmm. Because they know it's a transactional thing. What that law firm is doing is it's actually cashing in on its trademark. It's cashing in on its brand that it's built over those years in order to make money from an unsuspecting public that yeah. thinks that that's synonymous with quality. That's where that goodwill is extraordinarily valuable. I, on the other hand, have to hustle. I've got to do well for my client. The, um, it's funny. I've seen that maxim play itself out. Where you should hire a firm that understands your interests and that is around the same size as your business, I always yeah. say, because they will empathize with you. It's a really good piece of advice. That yeah. really is, yeah. Which is interesting because, like, we get it, right? For a big law firm, they're like, why can't you pay a $10,000 bill? Mm-hmm. Because they're used to their cash flow looking like hundreds of thousands of dollars, and that's just a drop in the bucket for them. 
to a small firm, like I understand if somebody came to me and threw me an unexpected five ten thousand dollar bill, I'd be sweating it. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. I would definitely, I'd be wondering where I'm going to get that money. And I, I think that's something that it's helpful to have that mindset with your business partners if you're a small to medium sized business, mm-hmm. because it'll shine through in the way that your lawyers do things. They'll write off time on their invoices if they think it'll help. Well, they'll blend and extend their invoices yeah. to have you guys making minimum payments. They'll agree to flat fees up front for things because it gives you certainty in terms of what you're going to bill. Where a big law firm doesn't need to do any of that. Yeah. So it's 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 very very interesting, you know. If you're a smaller to medium sized business, there are, is just an abundance of three, four, five person law firms out there. Yes. Some of which have really experienced, really good attorneys. The 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 best attorneys I've showed up against that have done the best work for their clients. A lot of times are small firms. Really. Like there's a, while we're shouting people out. There's a guy named Mark Hershovitz. Mm-hmm. who's a trademark lawyer here in Atlanta. <laughs> Probably the finest defense counsel I've dealt with ever. Really? In terms of, uh, yeah, he's amazing. He, he has the, he also has the, um, he also has the distinction of having the single largest jury verdict in Georgia litigation history. So it's, you know, you look the guy up, you see he's got cachet, and then he handles himself in a very professional, stern, not a bully, but also not gonna, you know, not gonna be pushed around either. Yes. Stern but fair, we say. The, uh, those lawyers get such better results for their clients because they don't drag out lawsuits. They're very eager to handle them. They care. They're going to have to talk to that client. The person that's doing the work has to talk to the client because that's a big part of it too. Like you're going to a courtroom. Egos are battling. These like, associates are going back and forth at each other, a little cracked out, Adderalled out, trying to get their 2,200 hours a, a year, and they're letting their <laughs> egos get in the way, and they're causing all these problems and because they don't have to turn around and talk to their client afterwards. Mm-hmm. The partner's going to do that. And he's going to try to smooth it over. And By the way, all that partner cares about is getting as close to the exact number that that company has budgeted to pay for the legal services for that quarter. Because yeah. if they don't, if they're ideally a little bit over, so the company budgets a little bit more next quarter. But if you go too far over, the company's going to complain, start checking invoices, and maybe look for a different law firm. If you go too far under, the company's going to change their budget the next quarter and think, oh, yeah, it only costs. Yeah, right. yeah. So there's a very different model when you're dealing with those big firms. And unless you're willing or needing to or just on board to pay a like quarterly, yearly budget for legal services that you know you need, you're much better off working with a small firm. Yeah. I have clients that are great clients who I've done work for and I would happily hop off my butt and do things for today that I haven't heard from in six months. I haven't got yeah. a bill for my firm in eight months. <laughs> <laughs> right. So it's like, yeah, it, it's it's wild. The um, But that's just the difference in the business model, right? The small yeah. firms are very fiduciary. They care a lot about the outcome for their clients. They're willing to get in the weeds. They're willing to take some punches. Yeah. I mean, that's the biggest thing is it's like really not that hard for me to go out there and argue in front of a judge what I legitimately believe is the fair case. And the other half of that is you know, I want experience and I want what's best for my client. Yeah. yeah. So – you deal with that compared to like a big law firm that isn't kind of considering things and is willing to drag things out. All they care about is billing. Yeah, makes and sense. It, it's it's a huge difference. I will also say that the lawyers who carry a principled approach that do a lot of pro bono time, give time to charity, care about what they're doing, uh, appeal to general principles of fairness and equity, care about the law, care about the facts. Um, those lawyers are happier. Yeah, because mm-hmm. this is a, a profession full of very unhappy people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's funny for me because I'm a quite happy person. I mean, I, I have a very good certainly life. certainly seem like it. I don't have a boss. I haven't had a boss in four years. So it's, it's good. <laughs> is, yeah. is that the magic? That's the magic. <laughs> I've heard. Is that makes a key. difference. Yeah, but it, it's – I think that's a big part of it. But the other thing is I sleep well at night knowing that I'm a good person. Like that's yeah. the biggest thing. Like I'm not out here helping drug companies get away with killing people with opioids and not paying for it. Right. Yeah. You know, I'm not out here 
when Apple and Samsung's latest spat over design patent in federal court when time should be spent actually dealing with problems. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I'm actually helping small businesses create intellectual property that benefits them in the future. I'm helping our clients actually settle their disputes instead of dragging them out forever, at least where possible. And there's a time you have to fight. I mean, that happens. There's times you got to go to court. There's times you got to do those things. The other side is acting in bad faith or isn't going to do that. Uh, not every not every case is one of those. Yeah. And it's very important. This episode is brought to you by HyperChat Social, the attorney's social media marketing agency. From branding to lead generation, we have experts specializing in all areas of digital marketing, and we're ready to help you take your practice to the next level. Contact us today at 877-359-3399 or book a free consultation online at tryhyperchat.com. That's T-R-Y-H-Y-P-E-R-C-H-A-T dot com. <laughs> Obviously, at opening statements, podcast, you know, we really value the uh, you know the, the stories clearly we've had a ton of them and I think we've had a really you know good amount of learning opportunities and value adds back to our listeners things to whether you know whether they're looking out for as a business owner or an attorney um, I think we've had just a great bit of information here but I really want to get us into our last and final segment so you better be paying attention oh, I am paying attention. <laughs> because I see you over there. Yeah, so just checking emails, um, checking emails. Yeah. We're going to try to put you in the hot seat, you know, so Uh-oh. it's called our closing arguments. Wow. That's right. This week's closing arguments. Of course, we are playing a game of plead the fifth. Oh, really? This game is designed where we will give you three hard hitting questions. Okay. You can only pass or plead the fifth. On one of them. Mm. Chug a chug. Are yeah. you ready? Yeah. You need another brewski <laughs> for this? Yeah, yeah let's beer. open you'll get, it. You'll get well, better you, you answers, wanna... yeah. Okay. Yeah. My goal is to plead... This is... Uh, my goal oh, you is got to one right here? Fifth. Look at you. We got oh, two. Perfect. Your goal is to plead the fifth? My goal is to not plead the fifth at uh, all. Our goal is okay. to have you plead the fifth. I wrote okay. these ones down that we talked about, okay. so just make sure you go off of that. Okay. Amazing. I pride myself on being an open book, so this should be interesting. And we try to avoid asking you things that we know are cheap shots that will definitely get you to plead the fifth. Name the worst client you've ever had well, and his that. patent, you I know? I did like, something similar. <laughs> name, yeah, name no. your most hated current client. No, we won't do yeah, that. We yeah, we won't do attention, that. Yeah, attention so-and-so. Pay your bills. The, uh, attention so-and-so. <laughs> hey, you know, if it helps you and you get you know, some money no, no, out no, of no, it. No. Yeah. Uh, it's actually, I don't think we have anyone whose bills are overdue right now, which is crazy. Uh, that's, but. that's that's a lovely <laughs> <thing>. <laughs> Might be the first time in firm history. <laughs> what is the worst reaction a client has had directly to you after a case not going their way? Ooh. Oh, man. Um, so, candidly, I've only ever had two cases not go our way, ever. One and was the porn one. One was the porn one, and the other one was a dispossessory claim where my client hadn't been paying rent for quite some time. So, oh. that one we thought we were going to lose. So the um, <laughs> Why? But you didn't, you didn't think the, the, did. the porn well, no, I really, hub one? No, I really thought we were going to win the porn hub case. <laughs> oh, okay. I really thought we had that one in the bag, and... Forty-five minutes later, you were like, "Never mind." (laughs) I was wrong. Yeah, it happens. I mean, that's the thing. Is you know, the judge even said anything. You know, it's a very unsettled area of law. Um, So we'll use that one as an example of just a general sense of how, because we don't want to, you know, obviously admit anything that's privileged or anything like that. Yeah. Yeah. But I will say the general sense. um, I look for someone to blame. (laughs) It's not not me. I'm like, they're like, oh, it's like it's the judge. It's 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 opposing counsel is in bad faith. The other party's a schmuck. You know, whatever. We're going to appeal. You you try to come up with something to mollify the client immediately. And we've been fortunate. In that, I think a lot of managing that client response is making sure they understand the risks going in. They're yeah, like, hey, that's we, true. We could lose, and we have a we have a contingency plan. But yeah, a lot of it you need a scapegoat. I mean, you really do. They've got to be able to like blame anyone and everyone who's not you. 
Uh, and because your, your client really wants to feel like their lawyer is like the know all and all be all of what they're doing. Um, you know, it, it's really tough in terms of managing it. I think the best thing you can do is try to manage it up front yeah. by telling your client, advising them of the risks. I mean, I, I, I can't tell you how many times in writing I put it in writing before we go to any patent trial. If you're going to assert your patent, you're putting it at risk. The court could always invalidate it. Mm. These are things that can happen. Um, so, so what was their uh, worst reaction, though? The worst Despite reaction. all of that hard well, work that he, you did he, up front. He had a fit, left for a while. We didn't see each other for a bit. And then I uh, took him up for sushi that night. And we got to hash it over. So, I mean, that's the thing. Is, oh, that's not even that bad. It's okay. not bad. But we, we've never – when we've had client relationships deteriorate, it's never been over a bad ruling. Yeah. Um, it, it's been over, you know, not listening to legal advice. That's one of the things that's really big for me. If a client just disregards what you tell them to do over and over and over again, there's nothing I can do to help them. Right. They're wasting their time and our time and, and their money. And yeah. Yeah. So we, we don't want to. Why do would that. you pay someone, you know, for advice you if you're see, never going to take it? You, see, you know, you like, what's the that, point? But. <laughs> <laughs> but it happens. All the time. All the time. All the time. All the time. I, I, do they just pay you to tell you so no I and that they do? They well, so you know what it you. is, is that I think people don't like being told no. I think that if you yeah. tell someone they can't do something, the natural human inclination reaction to that is to say, yes, I can. And watch me. And watch me. Exactly. So I don't. I, That's it, gotten me into trouble yeah. a time or two. <laughs> I don't tell my clients no. I, I really don't. I don't tell them what they can and can't do. I'm not in the business of telling grown adults how to behave. Uh, what I do is I advise people what the consequences are likely going to be of their actions. So if they say, I want to constructively evict this tenant by cutting off their water. I'm not going to say, oh, no, don't do that, which they really shouldn't. But I'm going to say, well, if you do that, they could theoretically file an action against you in court for wrongful eviction, and that violates the state statute here and here and here, so a court would be likely to award this type of judgment against you. That's not telling someone no. That's just surprising them of the consequences of their actions. You allow them to come to the no on their own, and I think that's a big part of it. Uh, where we've had issues, clients don't want to pay, um, there's miscommunications, or sometimes you just don't see eye to eye. Like there's people you get into a room with and maybe the relationship is good over the start, but over time there's miscommunications or the relationship just generally deteriorates. Uh, they feel that they're not getting their money's worth or you know, they want to work with a different firm that they think there is, is for whatever reason going to help them accomplish their goals better. Then I think the other trick to that is knowing when to leave the party. So it's very good for if you're going to trial and you're trying to advise your client of risks and everything like that and they're just not listening to you, not listening to you, not listening to you. Uh, I think what you tell them is, well, I don't think that I can be a good lawyer for you in this case. I don't think we've established an effective attorney-client relationship. These are the other firms I'm suggesting you look at hiring in order to finish out the case. And then we can entry of appearance and show up in your case in a day. Yeah. So it's very important for that client to avoid the, 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 the negative implication of that, that you make sure that, especially in high-stress situations like trials, uh, you have that trust, that relationship wholly and fluidly with that client. And if you don't, you need to find counsel that they can have that with. Yeah. Otherwise, it's going to be a very negative experience for them. Okay. I would count that as a pass. Like, not a pass in the bad way. Like, a like a he successfully answered that question. He did not pass or plead the fifth. Yes. So, so all right. Clients to tell you all I know. Like, come on. Be a worse attorney for us, please. Oh, give me time. Give me time. <laughs> yeah, so there, 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 there is one. We need a bad one. We want a bad one. Okay. If, yes. I'll give you guys a short list of people to ask. The, um, okay, <laughs> there we go. We'll take that we'll, off We'll take your list. If you yes. really want a list of sleazeball attorneys, can you can name you. them all now? <laughs> I'm kidding, I'm name kidding. the sleaziest ball. I mean, there's a couple. If you had to name one, you know, copyright, trademark, 
that you would say would be the one to violate? Ooh, that's a great answer. I love that. Um, <laughs> so the biggest thing is there. It, I have clients all the time that look for genericide. And what genericide is is when something becomes so commonplace as a brand identifier that it substitutes for the product itself. Okay. It's like a Coke bottle? Like, would that be something like that? Kind of. Coke or like a good Zoom? Job of avoiding genericide by making sure. That's the interesting thing is Coca-Cola, you know the biggest thing that supports our trademark is the existence of Pepsi. The existence of a choice of something that's differentiable because it doesn't become an industry standard. I'm thinking of things like Xerox. I'm thinking oh, of things sure. like okay. I, I was thinking of things oh, like um, like where you use the brand name the as, as the, the adjective. Ad- yes. Kleenex oh, is a great example. It's the one that people I need use to clean a lot it. It's like the verb. Mm-hmm. Like I'm Kleenexing mm-hmm. my nose. Or, or like I need a Clorox to some extent, I mean, my counters. Like I need to bleach my counter. Is bleach a No, bleach trademark? is just a chemical. Oh, like, Clorox yeah. is a company. I'm going to Google something. Yeah, right. yeah. that's Google. probably I'm going to Uber there. I might be taking a lift. We just I, named yeah. all kinds of things, and he's like, no. So there's a lot there. of things that are close, right? They get close, and what they try to do is look for meaningful competition in that market. Swiffer is a good example. I'm going to Swiffer my floor. You might uh-huh. you might be using a Walmart duster, but you're referring to the same thing. Uber was one that, like, I found myself slipping into all the time. I would be taking a lift because it was $20 cheaper to go where I was going. But, like, oh, yeah, I'm going to Uber there. I don't think I still say I'm Ubering because I don't want them to think I'm broke taking a lift. (laughs) You're you're so cheap. Maybe I should look at Lyft. Maybe Lyft Lyft is is, the one that comes out. I value shop every time I go anywhere. I open both apps, and my fiance is like, what are you doing? I'm saving money, okay? I'm getting us there. We've got to get married, you know? This is why we don't. you got stuff to save up for. We actually legitimately had, I was like, this is why we don't make extra payments on our just because we do stuff like that. <laughs> <laughs> we take Uber and not Lyft. Head, I was like, do we really need DoorDash again this week? Yes. And then I get home and I'm like, I don't want to move. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, see, just move far enough outside the city limits and you don't have those options. I don't get Uber. <laughs> I don't get DoorDash. Solves the problem I've for got them. McDonald's literally almost walking distance from my house. They don't even like deliver to me, but they deliver to other places. I get my groceries delivered from Publix and Publix is... Maybe you live behind yeah. Publix. I live behind Publix. Yeah, like I, I could probably, if I had like a good arm, I could probably throw a rock at that you could. shopping. You center. absolutely could. I'm just lazy. Delivery services have just become so commonplace for so many things, especially if you're in a. Everybody adult. should venture out to Forsyth I, County. Nah, <laughs> I, 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 no, I've yeah, Forsyth's interesting. I their, went courts, back. their courts are definitely <laughs> gamed up. I have heard of that. Their local courts are <laughs> yeah, real gamed up in Forsyth County. Yeah, if you have money in Forsyth, chances are you uh, you know the judges. Every single one of them. They might be your cousins. The, uh, and so, your uncles. Yeah. Your, co- your, your cousin, uncle, nephews. Your cousin, uncle, <laughs> I moved to Forsyth, okay? I'm not from Forsyth. I moved there. And if you I, live in Forsyth, we love you. We yeah. do. So, okay, so... Like a brother. That's the one to violate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's the one to... I mean, anything that's generic is a good thing to violate. <laughs> Rebecca's... Um, software patents are a great example. I mean, it, it's very up in the air about whether or not they're enforceable, and that's changing all the time. Part of the issue is that the guidance comes from the Supreme Court, who are all a thousand, and none of them understand how any any software works. That was something I was going to ask. Is like, does that get in the way? You know, kind of yes, all the time. About, uh, wow, <laughs> all the time. Whether I'm not- sure, like you think about like that Facebook, like big legal thing like Mark Zuckerberg's like trying to defend and explain what Facebook was uh, yes. to the all Congress. these ancient yeah. people. Yeah. We yeah, serve so ads. Is, yeah. yeah, so much of it is like here's a baseline make, of You have what a free platform. Yeah. How do you make like money? Tubes. <laughs> 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 it's a, no, it, it is, I mean it is when you're dealing with highly technical subject matter a lot of times. That said, there actually are getting to a point now where a lot of districts 
have judges who are former patent litigators or going like for instance Mark Scarcey was the judge I was in front of like love him or hate him that guy knows patent law inside and out and he had a lot of really really good questions because he has a whole career litigating that sort of thing oh, that's cool. um, another great example of here in the northern district of Georgia is there's a, a an older justice emeritus who serves out of the Gainesville courthouse uh, named Richard Story who is uh, something of an IP expert he does a lot of trademark copyright patent claims he's very interested in it and he's been on the bench since the 90s, so he's had a chance to see quite a few of these. And as the law has changed, you know, he, he probably knows the law better than pretty much anybody else in his courtroom, which is good because he's a judge. But you the, need a uh, judge on here. Th there are, with that said, it, it's that. difficult for a lot of the judiciary to grasp, especially recently changing aspects of law. And you also have to keep in mind that the same judges, like I've had copyright claims in, in New York that were. I had one that was in front of um, a Judge Loretta Presco when I was in the Eastern District of New York, or maybe it was Southern District of New York for a case. I, I don't remember anymore. It's a copyright case from like three or four years ago. Uh, and this guy was waxing poetic on about you know, some you – know, the, the value of copyrights as they pertain to this, that, the other thing. there. And she just stops him in the middle of this thing and goes, you understand that I presided over Ghislaine Maxwell's evidentiary hearing yesterday, right? She was like, please get to your point. <laughs> and it was just like, at that point, like, first of all, I'm not saying a word for the rest of the hearing. Right. Like, <laughs> I just, the, my biggest tour de force wins in court, I haven't had to say a word most of the time. I'm just sitting there and let the judge chew out the other side. Yeah, someone buries himself. That's the biggest thing. Anybody who's listening, if you're going to go to court and represent yourself, speak when spoken to. Please do never try to talk over a judge. In that courtroom with their hammer and their, their yeah, that, that's <laughs> their territory. No, that they are, they could be the nicest person in the world. They could be your neighbor. They get in that room, it, it changes. They're, they're, As and they're, it should. In their professional role as a judge, they are gonna. They are stern. Act the way you would act if you were in a middle school vice principal's office. You might get slapped in the mouth in here, so you need to behave yourself. <laughs> put, put your knuckles on the table. Yeah. Okay, my last question. Okay, let's get them. What is the worst thing about working with your partner? Oh, about Justin? Yeah, Justin. Yeah. Throw Justin under oh, the Justin. bus. We're gonna have him on next too. I guess oh, nice. third. He would probably be down. The, um, third after firmly and. Oh uh, well, I can probably Firminator. say this with comfort <laughs> that he'll probably never listen to this. But the um, we'll send him hard. this. See, clip. Justin is is it's interesting. A lot of people and we deal with a lot of other like two person partnerships because mm -hmm. that's a lot of small businesses are like that. One of the best things about having a partner is that they are so different from you. Mm. Like, Justin and I are very, very different people. We have very different skill sets. He's not you know, always the most loquacious person. He's not long-winded. But he can write a much better legal brief and do much better legal research than I can. And I'm yeah. not ashamed to admit that. I'm very, very glad that I have him on my team. Um, I, I think the, the worst thing about working with one of your best friends is that sometimes the work does get in the way of the friendship a little bit. He and I have managed that really well, I think. Um, he's my best man at my wedding. We've continued to, to have. Yeah, oh, he's my yeah. best friend in the world. Like, there's no question. Oh, I love this. That's like knows, somebody asking us this well, nobody, question. I know. <laughs> nobody knows your neuroticisms quite like someone who has to deal with you every day. Yes. Like, it, it's all day, every day, all, and then yes. all night via text. Yes. Swap yeah. tips on how they deal is like when he's yeah. overstimulated. How do we get into calm? <laughs> yeah. it, but it's. I think the thing that's very interesting uh, about about working with Justin, one of the things that we we struggle with is partners. We didn't say interesting. Worst. Worst. Yeah, right. worst. One of the things that we do worse than anything else that we do. Um, no, no, is... Justin does worse, not we. <laughs> <laughs> Stop. I'm a deeply flawed person. Okay, like, there's, there's a lot of things. Yeah, same. We're not asking about yeah. that. We're asking about yeah. I get it. I get it. Um, delegating tasks back and forth can be difficult in two-person firms. It's hard to understand who's handling what, and sometimes mm. the ball gets dropped, and then no one wants to take. So Justin drops the ball and doesn't take responsibility. responsibility. I would characterize that's what that I heard. As, I, I heard that too. I heard that too in the episode. <laughs> <laughs> We're done.
<laughs> I'll admit this because we actually had an argument with us the other day. He will never admit when he's wrong. <laughs> he will never, ever, I have never, and I don't expect it, but I will never hear him say the word, I am sorry I was wrong. That will never, ever, 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 ever come out of his mouth. We could, he could be proven wrong in front of you and he'll look at you and be like, so what? He'll be walking away in handcuffs like, like I'm not. Yeah, screw that. Contempt, lock me up. I don't care. That is the worst thing about Judge. He will never admit that he's wrong. There I'm, we I'm go. We got there. Yes. Yeah. Good. Well, yeah. But that said, he's literally like, him and my fiance are tied from favorite person in the world for me. Aww. So I'm going to get in trouble for Gemma for saying that now. Shit. Yeah. She will listen to the whole thing, too. She, and she will listen to the whole thing. <laughs> she will. He loves you. He raves about you. He will be yes. looking, she will be looking for inconsistencies. Yes. <laughs> he said he was trying this trial and that did. And she probably will catch me in one or two. <laughs> she will not because you would never do such a thing. Never. Oh, it, it does keep me honest because I know I'm not going to get away with anything. <laughs> she seems like our I know. Person. We need to get to Oh, she's great. Yeah, I've all the... I've outkicked my coverage by a massive margin. I will be the first person to admit that. Aww. Yeah. Yeah. So. All right. We'll have her have her on. Yeah. We'll we'll get all the. <laughs> we'll have her fact Honestly, That would be a really interesting session of this podcast. Is to uh-huh. have like this spouse of a lawyer in the seat. Yeah. Because like, the biggest thing is like this career makes you so dang argumentative about things that you're passionate about and like one of the best pieces of relationship advice I've gotten from another lawyer is resist the urge to cross-examine your partner. Yes. I think John That's, Pope mentioned that on him. Yes, he sure. did. I think he mm-hmm. actually did. Yes. It's, that is something that definitely like because your argumentative nature luckily I get a lot of my aggression out at work with what I do but like it does bleed That's over good. a little bit. Yeah. And she's like what are you upset about me? I was like I'm just pissed off about this case. Like I'm not It's not you. Completely unrelated yeah. to you. Yeah. Well, I was I was like Jenna people are trying me today. <laughs> Yeah, people are trying my patience, and I'm going to have to just, you, you just want to stay a little bit further away until you I You stay get on done. that side of the house. Just let me write my nine-paragraph email about how this dude is a loser, and then and edit then we'll it down talk. to three, send it, and then we're good. Yeah. <laughs> Backspace out of all those exclamation points. Yeah. And uh-huh. Best regards or whatever. Yeah. Um, well, thank you so much for joining my us pleasure. on thank you for having me, guys. our podcast here. We had a fun time with you. Yes, we did. So everyone listening, you guys can check us out at HyperChat Social. We're on all the social medias. All of them. All of them. Um, And of course, remember, please give us a five-star review everywhere that you get your podcast. And we will catch you next time. Case Case closed. closed.